All right. Hey, it's good to be back with you. Uh, some of you are like, you were gone? Yeah, I was gone. Uh, Rebecca and I, my family got to take a few weeks off and uh, Rebecca got to go visit a friend in the UK after um, being separated from her for a long time, so that was great. Uh, she came home, we packed up the kids, we spent a week at Lake Cowichan, uh, came home, did a little bit more camping elsewhere as well. So really, really thankful for the time away, really thankful for a church that values their pastors getting needed rest, and incredibly thankful for my team who made it possible to completely disconnect and travel stress-free. So thanks to everybody. I'm thankful today. Are you? Come on. Uh, it's going to be good. But uh, as much as I enjoy getting time away, I love preaching from the Word of God. And so really happy to be back to do that today. We are in our series POV, Point of View, where we're looking at stories from Scripture where people encountered Jesus and had their life radically changed. When people meet Jesus, their perspective, their point of view changes. Some stories we see people uh, disturbed and disrupted by Jesus. They don't like him. Other stories, people's lives are healed and radically turned around and they embrace Jesus. And we've been looking at both kinds of stories. Um, so as we move into today, we're actually looking at the story of Saul. Saul on the road to Damascus. You can get ahead of me by jumping to Acts chapter 9. Uh, as we get ready and as I provide some introduction here. Now, what I want to be clear about is that people didn't just have this experience with Jesus in the Bible. They didn't just meet him, you know, in the stories of the Gospels, and only those people got to meet Jesus, and only those people got to have their lives changed. Jesus still meets people today. People still encounter the presence and power of Jesus today and have their lives transformed. And so that's why over this Sunday and next Sunday, as we continue this series, I want to show you a couple of stories of people encountering Jesus outside the stories of the Gospels. So like after Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven, he still encountered people, and their lives were still being changed, which shows that today we can still encounter people, Jesus, and have our life changed by him. Today, people out on the street who aren't in church this morning can encounter Jesus and have their life changed by him. So I hope this fills you with faith and trust that Jesus is still alive and Jesus is still working. So the book of Acts. The book of Acts is basically a selective history of the first 30 years of the Christian movement. So Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave, met with people, showed, showed them that he was alive. Then he ascended into heaven, and as he did so, he launched the church. He empowered the church with the Holy Spirit. And the book of Acts basically tells us a bunch of stories about what was happening in the first 30 years or so of that movement. And this guy, Saul, was a prominent figure in the book, starting in about chapter 7. He shows up first as overseeing the execution of one of the Christians, Stephen, who's been preaching. He ends up uh, getting in trouble with the religious ruling council, the Sanhedrin. They stone him to death. Saul is there overseeing the execution. That's where we are introduced to him. Now, throughout the book, as you can see, Saul starts as a villain. But as the book moves along, Saul ends as the hero. So what happened in the middle. Saul is, most, for the most part, uh, better known as Paul. Saul was his Hebrew Jewish name. Paul was his Greek name. There is a story that goes around that 
when he became a follower of Jesus, his name changed from Saul to Paul. Not actually true. He just went by Saul when he was around Hebrew people. He went by Paul when he was around Greek and Gentile people. And we, we know him better as Paul because he became the missionary to the non-Jews. He went out for the Roman Empire and planted churches and led people to Jesus all through the nations. So, like I said, we're introduced to him in Acts 7, and then a massive persecution breaks out, and Saul becomes a leader in that persecution. He's highly educated. He's a religious leader. He's, he's so well-educated, he probably had the whole Old Testament memorized, whereas I can't memorize my postal code half the time, right? The whole Old Testament memorized. He's got this all by heart. He follows the religious laws perfectly. He's likely a member of the religious ruling council, the Sanhedrin. He studied under the best of the best rabbis. He's a brilliant mind. People who, who look at, at Saul's life say that if he didn't become a follower of Jesus, we may still have heard about him because he was that brilliant and would have been that influential even among the Jewish community that there probably would have been sayings of Rabbi Saul even today. So this is who Saul is. Now, he had motivation because of his deep love for the Jewish scriptures and the Jewish law. His motivation was to keep the Jewish law pure and to keep the nation of Israel pure. He believed that Israel's greatest problem was their inability to properly follow the laws of God as outlined in the Hebrew scriptures, which we call the Old Testament. He thought if only people would obey the law perfectly, if only they would do what the covenant told them they needed to do, they'd experience all the blessings of God, Israel would have religious and political freedom, they, they'd be a global superpower, the kingdom of God could be established on earth if only the people would do what God told them to do. But, of course, people kept sinning. People kept worshiping false gods. They kept disobeying the law. They kept siding with the enemies of God's people, the Romans. And this drove Paul crazy. So he was willing to do whatever it took to purify the land and to bring people back into alignment with the law of God, even if he had to kill some troublemakers along the way. So when this ragtag group of Christians who follow, in Paul's mind, a man who was now dead, and they start going around making the claims they did, Paul started to get frustrated and angry. These Christians, they made claims that the law, which Saul loved so much, wasn't as important as it used to be. They said, we don't really need the temple anymore. They said, we don't need to make animal sacrifices anymore. They said, get this, Jews and non-Jews can worship together. Oh, that would have made Paul bristle. And this rabbi that they spoke about, Jesus, they claimed that he actually rose from the dead and was the king of kings and lord of lords. To Paul, all of these beliefs, all of these claims were an abomination and a major threat to the security and stability of God's people. To Paul, or to, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm trying to call him Saul through the whole sermon, but I'm going to call him Paul, okay? So just roll with me, let it, let it happen. He went by both names. I'm doing my best. So to Saul, this was a cancer among God's people that needed to be cut out, and he was going to do whatever it took. He had to move fast. The movement needed to be crushed before it led people astray. So in his zeal for the law, Saul began a righteous crusade destroying the church of Jesus 
wherever he found Jesus followers. It started with Stephen and continued from there. So we pick up his story in Acts chapter 9. Our text is all the way to verse uh, 22, but we'll read it in bits today. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So Paul gets these letters of permission as he travels to Damascus, just north of Israel. He wants to look in the synagogues there, see if he can root out any Christians, arrest them, bring him back to Jerusalem for trial. Verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. So as the story progresses, please keep in mind how I introduced Paul to you. Saul, Paul. I'm just not, not going to correct myself again. Keep in mind how I introduced Saul to you. Brilliant religious mind. Memorized the Hebrew scriptures. Steeped in the Jewish law. Everything that he took in in his surroundings, he filtered through his understanding of God's law. So as he encounters Jesus here, we need to try to get into Saul's mind to see how he would interpret this experience. So it says, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. So Saul's brilliant Hebrew scripture mind, how would he interpret a surrounding a, a light flashing and surrounding him. He would not have misunderstood this like some, you know, country bumpkin, like, oh, aliens, he wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have done that. He would have thought, well, who dwells in light? Who spoke and said, let there be light, and suddenly there was light? Who is the Lord of heavenly lights? Instantly, Paul would have understood that in this moment, he was encountering the presence of God. He was in the presence of the holy God of his ancestors the one he had studied and tried to commune with his whole life. Now, Paul, Paul may have understood this as, oh, finally, God has noticed my zeal, and he's come to tell me how great a job I'm doing at killing these Christians. More likely, he was probably terrified. Because when you read accounts in the scriptures of people experiencing moments of flash of light in God's presence, they all of a sudden realize, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean. So here he is, surrounded by light, in the presence of God. And, and Saul knew he had stumbled into the presence of the Holy God. So, verse 4, he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Again, Saul's going to filter this. In the book of 1 Samuel, we see when God speaks to the young boy Samuel. He, he says just this exact same way. He says, Samuel, Samuel. He repeats his name two times, Samuel, Samuel, Saul, Saul. And then in the story with Samuel, God paused and patiently waited for Samuel to respond. So maybe, maybe Saul is about to respond like Samuel did, and, and Lord, it's me, I, I'm listening. But instead, God interrupts, or at least he doesn't allow Saul to speak. He continues on and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? This is where Saul suddenly knew he was in trouble. This is where Saul suddenly knew he wasn't getting a visitation from the Lord in order to give him an attaboy, but he was come to bring judgment on his life. The conversation turns unexpectedly, and Saul responds a little confused. He says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. 
At this moment, Saul's worldview shattered. And there's at least three things that Saul learned here. And we're going to look to see how Paul, Saul's, uh, his point of view changed. But also after this, we'll look at how our point of view can change from this story. Number one, this is what, this is what Saul learned. He learned that Jesus is God. You see, when, when Saul was surrounded by that flash of light, he knew he was in the presence of God. He knew without a shadow of doubt that he was in the presence of the holy God. Then all of a sudden, the God that he had worshipped for so long revealed himself to be Jesus. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. That leader of the ragtag group of Christians that you think were so misguided and dangerous. Jesus, Saul learned, is the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of all things. Jesus, Saul learned, is the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. And later, when Saul writes his letter to the Colossians, he writes this, all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Saul learned, as he experienced the presence of God surrounding by light, that God is revealed most fully in the man Jesus Christ whom he was persecuted. Second thing Saul learned was that his religious zeal was misguided. Zeal isn't necessarily a bad thing. Zeal can be a good thing. Zeal is merely just being excited about something, passionate and committed about something. If zeal is pointed in the right direction, it can be an incredibly positive thing. But when zeal is pointed in the wrong direction, it can be an incredibly dangerous thing, especially when it's so much zealousy that it leads you to violently oppose those who disagree with you. There's a lot of religious zeal in the world today. A lot of it is misdirected. The Old Testament prophets, they were zealous, but they were zealous about justice and mercy. That's a good kind of zealousy. Jesus was zealous, and he was zealous about love and compassion. That's a good kind of zeal. Saul was zealous, but he was zealous about religious observance and law-keeping to the point of violently opposing those who disagree. That's the bad kind of zealousy. It missed the mark. The, the Bible uses words that we translate as into the word sin, the English word sin. And that, that English word sin is actually a term in archery. Did you know this? Um, when you aim at the target... You got that round target, and you fire your arrow, and it completely bypasses the target. It misses it completely. It's called a sin. And what's interesting about a sin in archery is when the archer is aiming, to everybody else, it kind of looks like they're aiming at the target. Like, we'd know they were not going to hit the target if they were aimed the opposite direction. But if they're directing toward the target, everyone kind of thinks, and even the archer thinks, hey, this is going to hit it. And even when the arrow starts flying it kind of looks like it's going to hit the target. But then all of a sudden, it whizzes right past. And then he's committed a sin. And so Saul here, in his zeal for what he thinks is zeal for the Lord, it's misdirected, but maybe only by a few degrees, which makes it the most dangerous kind of misdirection. Because you don't know you're off the target until it flies right by. But he has misdirected his zeal not toward the, he's not really zealous for the Lord. He's zealous for law. He's zealous for obedience. He's zealous for perfection, which is not what the law was trying to produce in people. The law was trying to produce in people a sense of justice and mercy 
and love and compassion. And Saul had completely missed the mark, and so he was in sin. Saul, being a law-observing Jew, looked very much like he was aimed at the target, but he had completely missed. Third thing Saul learned was that the Christians were right. The people of the way, as he called them. Jesus was alive. Jesus is alive. Before this moment, Saul knew for sure that Jesus wasn't alive. Saul might have actually been in the room when Jesus was on trial before his crucifixion. Saul might have actually gone to check out the crucifixion that day just to make sure that they had been doing it right. Saul may have even seen the body be taken down and put in the tomb. He knew that Jesus was dead. There's no way what these Christians were claiming could possibly be true. Besides, Saul knew his theology. Resurrection didn't happen until the last day. But he had heard this claim that the Christians were making, that Jesus rose from the dead. But today he realized that it was right. Later, Saul emphatically tells the Corinthian believers, the resurrected Jesus showed up to me in person. What those first believers believed was true. He showed up. I can testify to the fact that Jesus is alive and it changed everything for me. We pick up the story in verse 7. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. The situation goes from bad to worse. Saul realizes after this encounter with Jesus that he's blind, can't see anything. And again, think through Saul's worldview here. Jesus is communicating things to Saul that maybe only he would understand as a scholar of the scriptures. Maybe this psalm would have come to mind for Saul. Uh, for Saul. Psalm 135, 15 to 18. The idols of the nations have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, they have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Saul's devotion and zeal for the law had become an idol in his life. Beyond that, even his zeal for his nation, even his zeal for his ethnicity had become an idol in his life. And Jesus was bringing judgment on him. It was an idol in his life as much as if he was worshiping a stone statue in the image of a false god. And we can do the same thing with all kinds of things in our lives. We can create idols. Even if we don't have a little shrine in our house, we create idols in our lives and worship them. And this psalm says, those who worship idols will become like them. And Saul says, I am blind, just like the blindness of these false gods. I thought it was only the pagans who worshiped idols. Jesus was giving a physical illustration of the state of Saul's soul. Saul, you might be passionate about your conviction that Christians are evil, but it's based on blindness, not truth. So Saul knew that God was judging his idolatry. He had become like the idols that he was serving, blind as any pagan god. And Saul, Saul thought that he would be the furthest thing from an idol worshiper. There's no way he could be an idol worshiper. He was so zealous for the law of God, that's impossible. But he realized that just like he wrote in his letter to Timothy, that through all his self-righteousness, through all his moralizing, through all his religiosity, 
He had become, as he called Timothy, he said to Timothy, I was the worst of sinners. Do you know how you become the worst of sinners? By thinking you're better than all those other sinners. Because there's a kind of blindness to your own corruption. There's a self-righteousness and moralism that comes with that, that places you above everybody else. And it's impossible to see the arrogance of that until Jesus shows up and knocks you off your high horse and smacks you around a little bit and says, Listen, you are no better than anybody else. The same is true for you. The same is true for the guy standing two feet higher than you, except for you balcony people, you're the best. The same is true for everybody in this room. You and I, no matter how good we are, no matter how righteous we think we are, no matter how moral we are, no matter how many rules we have obeyed, Apart from Jesus' love and salvation, we are no better than the worst idol worshiper, pagan, murderer, adulterer, or rapist out there. I'm using strong language, but it's not even as strong as the language the scriptures use to describe the state of our sinful hearts apart from Jesus. Until we get that, we're stuck in our self-righteousness and pride, which creates the worst kind of sinner. And Saul finally understood that's exactly what he was in this moment. I'm trying to make up for lost time in the last few weeks. We'll finish reading the rest of our texts in a moment, but here's the first point of application, point of view that we can take here. Number one, we all have blind spots. We all have blind spots. I, I've had a beard for many years. My theory was if I have a beard before I meet my wife, I'll get to keep it, right? Uh, so it worked. Now I can't get rid of it. Um, but I normally keep it pretty trim, but, but uh, I've had it longer in the past as well. But one of the challenges as your beard gets longer is if you're a messy eater, um, you get food in your beard and you don't notice. Because what happens, like, what happens to me sometimes, I eat, sometimes I eat, have an evening snack of cereal, and then I get a little bit of milk that dribbles onto my chin right here. And the reason is because I can't feel the coldness or the wetness on my skin. My beard protects me from feeling that. And so I just have milk on my chin. And Rebecca comes in the room like, what are you doing? Why is there, or, you know, you're slurping some spaghetti and you get sauce in your beard and it just, you know. I had a friend with a massive beard and watching him eat ice cream was hilarious, right? Um, so it's, it's just one of those things. And I don't know unless I look in a mirror or my wife comes in and lovingly and gently tells me I have something on my face. Now let's take a poll. Let's say you're out in public and you have food on your face or a booger hanging out of your nose, all right? And a stranger comes up to you, say, hey, like, there's, a, there's a thing you might want to deal with. Would you, rather, would you rather have a stranger actually let you know or would you rather live in blissful ignorance till you get home. Stranger? Blissful ignorance? Yeah, a few, few people who prefer the ignorance. Because then you get home, you're like, how long has this been here? Who did I see? Uh, but when you've been among friends and they don't say anything, then it's like, we're questioning friendship now. What's going on here? See, we appreciate it most of the time when people say, oh, you got something on your face, or you got something on your shirt, and maybe you haven't noticed that. We appreciate people's help in those situations, what we appreciate less is when people get extra honest and they point out legitimate character flaws in our life. 
that's when we get defensive. And then we start to think about, well, let's think about your character flaws. And we get into a bit of an argument, right? The truth is we all need to be challenged. It's one of the things that the body of Christ, the Christian community, is supposed to do for one another. To call each other out gently and graciously to say, hey, like, I've noticed this in your life. Can I help you work through it? The reality is Jesus will confront us. Anybody who meets Jesus will be confronted. Sometimes the way Jesus confronts people is gently, graciously, slowly, helpfully pointing out sin and helping deal with it. I think of the story of the woman caught in adultery. And everyone wanted to stone her. And Jesus said, hey, hey, I don't condemn you. But what did he say? He didn't say, go ahead and do whatever you want. He said, I don't condemn you, but listen, you do need to make some changes here. You need, you need to walk in a new way of living. But Jesus sometimes came to people like he came to Saul. And he was most harsh on the religious conservative. He was most harsh on those who should have known better, those who had the scriptures, those who had the revelation of God. He was most harsh on those who should know what God wants them to do, to act humbly, to walk justly with their God. That's what Jesus was most harsh with. And so he comes to people like, like myself, who's grown up in church, who knows the scriptures, and says, Dave, you should know better. I'm not going to be gentle with you. I'm going to smack you around. I'm going to blind you. I'm going to shake you out of this stupor so you can get back on track. And we need to be grateful to Jesus for the way he saves us from our own self-righteousness and destructive behavior. And we also need to take a cue from him that we need to be willing to come to each other who should know better and say, hey, can I help you get through this? But we need to be gentle with those who just don't know any better. They haven't, they haven't grown up with the word. They haven't grown up knowing the will of the Lord. They've been taught and, and seen things that they assume are true. We need to be gentle and loving and gracious and make space for people who are on a journey. Jesus confronts us. The reality is we need to remember that the classic kind of wayward, sinful life of rebellion and self-discovery isn't the only way to be alienated from God. It isn't the only way to deny our need for Jesus. Another way to deny our need for Jesus is to be really, really good and really, really self-righteous and really, really moral and follow all the rules. Because if I'm good enough and I go to church every Sunday and I pray every morning and I know my scripture, then I don't need Jesus to save me. And I judge all the other people who aren't as good as me. It's another way to alienate yourself from God. And that was the character that Saul was so good, so moral, so upright, so self-righteous that he didn't need salvation. At least he didn't think he needed it. And that's where spiritual blindness is most dangerous. Eventually, Saul is reflecting on this in his life. 2 Corinthians 4.4, and he says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You cannot see the glory of Christ, the light, the truth of who Jesus is. See, Satan is working extra hard to bring a blindness into the world so people can't see that they need Jesus. Let's continue the story, Acts 9-10. We'll read to the end of verse 22. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. 
In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. The amazing thing about Jesus is when he comes to confront your life, even if he does so in a really confrontational way like he did with Saul, he doesn't leave you broken and blinded on the side of the road. He doesn't confront you just for the sake of exerting his power. But he actually had prepared this whole scenario where Ananias would come and speak to Paul, minister to him, and heal him, and pray for him. And what's ironic is Ananias is one of the guys that Saul was coming to arrest. He was one of the Christians in Damascus. And, and Jesus says to Ananias, go to this guy who was going to come and arrest you and maybe have you killed and bless him and encourage him and pray for him and bring him into the family. Ananias even called him brother. Think about this story from Ananias' perspective. Think about this story from your perspective. Who is the person you'd least like to, like to be in a room with? Who is someone or a group of someone who are most antagonistic towards your beliefs? Maybe even violently antagonistic towards your beliefs. To put it more bluntly, think of someone that you would love nothing more than to go to hell. Don't point at them, okay? Jesus says to Ananias, go to that guy. Ananias is like, Jesus, I'm not sure if you've heard about what this guy is like. I'd prefer that you don't save him and help him. I'd prefer you just send him to hell, and then we Christians can have a little bit more freedom and liberty and not live in fear anymore. But he goes and he lays his hands on Saul and heals him and blesses him. Think of the transformation here. Imagine, let's think of extreme examples. Imagine if, if instead of taking his own life, Hitler had actually repented and become a spokesperson for peace and race, racial reconciliation. Imagine if Hugh Hefner had repented and become a spokesperson for sexual purity and monogamy in marriage. This is the kind of radical transformation we're seeing in the life of Saul, from killing Christians to arguing in the synagogues at, at danger of his own life, that the Christians were right all along. And this leads to our second point of view. Jesus gives us a new purpose. Jesus gives us a new purpose. When Ananias prayed for Saul, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. Again, that's, that's showing this idea that Saul had become like an idol, a blind idol, but now he had been liberated. He had been filled with the living spirit of God, and he'd been redirected into a new purpose. He had, now, he had been blind, and now he's given a vision 
to be a communicator of the gospel and a planter of churches and a proclaimer of the good news of Jesus to the whole world. He had been set free of dead religion and filled with the presence of the living God. The amazing thing was that, Paul, uh, that Jesus took all of Saul's past. He took all of his, his education. He took his brilliant mind. He took all of his experiences, the good ones and the bad, and he took those and he actually redirected them for his purpose. The things that Saul had used as a strength in order to persecute the church were now redirected as a strength in order to grow the church in the world. He even used Saul's mistakes as a way to amplify the grace of God that the worst of sinners can be saved and given a purpose. You see, the bits of your life and my life, the bits that make sense and don't make sense, our strengths, our weaknesses, everything can be used by Jesus to bring good into your life and good into the world around you. We just have to trust him to do the work through us. Later, as Saul reflected on his life before Jesus, he said something that is one of his most famous sayings, I think. He was reflecting on all his accomplishments as a Jewish rabbi before he met Jesus, and he says this in Philippians 3.8, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. The word translated garbage is probably better translated as a four-letter word, best used on a cattle farm rather than a church. Um, but that's the strong language that, that Saul is using as he writes uh, to the Philippians. Uh, the message paraphrase, paraphrases that word as dog dung, all right? So that's, that's how Paul says, everything in my past, all my religious upbringing, my memory of the scriptures, all my self-righteousness, everything I had accomplished, my fame, everything is dog dung compared to now what I have the way he has changed and saved my life. So how could Jesus do this? How is it possible that he could transform the worst things in my life into something beautiful? He could redirect me to a purpose that brings true life and meaning to the world. How can Jesus take someone who's murdering and persecuting religious minorities and turn them into the, one of the world's most influential people in history? How can he do it? Because of what Saul learned that day, that Jesus is alive. He's not dead. That's how he can do it. Jesus died on a Roman cross, an event that was applauded by men like Saul. He became an ugly, bloody mess of sin and death hanging from that cursed cross, and he was buried with sinners and left to rot. But in a flash of light, he returned whole, vibrant, and beautifully alive. He transformed an injustice done to an innocent man and made it into the single greatest act of forgiveness and salvation for humankind. Jesus took dog dung and he made it beautiful. If he can do that, and if he can do the same thing for Saul, then why can't he do it for you? Why can't he do it for our church? Why can't he do it in our city? Why can't he do it for the people that you love and your heart is broken for? But more than that, he can also do it for the people you don't like. The people you wish would go to hell. That's what Jesus is in the business of doing. Grabbing hold of lives, transforming them, repurposing them for his glory to make a difference in the world that he loves. Band, please come back up. You and I are on a road. We're on a road. And your road might look a bit different than mine. 
Saul was on a road. He thought he had a purpose. He had a direction. He was heading to Damascus to arrest these scoundrels, these Christians who were causing all kinds of damage to the faith that he loved. But our road is really made up of attitudes, beliefs and values, actions, habits, relationships. All of these are directing us and giving us purpose and angling us towards some destination. Where is that road leading me? Because here's what I know. Yes, we can talk about the wayward and the sinners and the people who are obviously distant from Jesus. But I also know this, that there's all kinds of people like Saul in churches today. Every church has people within it that think they're saved but aren't. They're, they're living in self-righteousness, living in morality, living in religiosity, ticking off boxes, thinking if enough boxes are ticked off, I get my access pass to heaven. But salvation doesn't come by being religious or being morally good. The gospel is not, if you are good enough, you will get into heaven. The gospel is that all of us have gone astray. All of us have gone our own way. All of us are alienated from God and on the wrong road. And all of us need Jesus to interrupt our journey and to call us back to him and to give us new purpose and enlist us into a kingdom that is totally different than the kingdoms of this world. And that we would join, as the language here in our text says, we would join the way of Jesus. It's a different way than the world is showing. It's a different way than religion shows us. It's the way of Jesus, a living way purchased by his blood. And we need to put all of our trust in him, not in any self-righteousness or any self-morality. Uh, it's good to be moral. It's good to walk in righteousness, but that doesn't come from your strength and your power. So as much as some of us in the room probably need to repent of some classic sins that we all are aware of, some of us in this room also need to repent of being really, really good as a way to avoid having to repent. Come to Jesus.